Podcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Welcome, believers, skeptics, and paranormal thrill seekers, to this episode of Through the Veil. I'm your host, the guy who is literally eating a bowl of cow chocula as he writes this episode, JD. I have one word for you to consider for a moment. Vampire. What feelings does it invoke in you? What comes to mind? Maybe it's your favorite film, book, or maybe it's just your plan for your Halloween costume this year. What is your image of the vampire? Is it a a being overflowing with sensual energy that seduces its prey? Or is it something more grotesque in appearance, relying on the shadows of the night to properly stalk its potential victims? When I decided to do a show on the vampire, I thought it would be an easy show to write. I couldn't have been more wrong. There is so much information in the lore to sift through and try to find truth. There are multiple theories on its origins, accounts from as early as the 16th century, and depictions that go all the way back to the birth of civilization. What we will go into will paint an entirely different creature than what you think as a vampire now. Pop culture has changed the lore to an almost unrecognizable creature from the myths and legends. In this episode, we will go deep into the lore, the cultures that surround the vampire, and what it means for the legend today. Stay with us after we hear from another podcaster on the Darkcast Network. We will be right back. Uh, so, did you hear about Jen Shaw? No, I didn't hear about Jen Shaw. How about Erica? You hear about Erica? Mm, I don't think so. What about that fraud shit from the other day? Uh, can you be more specific? <laughs> There's so much fraud out there and so much shenanigans. You should just tune into Book of Lies podcast. Book of Lies podcast. Every week we talk about some fraud, some scams, and maybe even some TV shows. Where there are scams. Yes, of course. Scams, frauds, and all those things. So tune in every week where we'll bring you a new topic of... Scams? That's right. (laughs) Scams. (laughs) So tune in on your favorite podcatcher to catch up on the latest liars, cheaters, thieves, and dirty rotten scoundrels. That's right. See you soon. Bye. Bye. The vampire, a creature of the night, cursed to stay in darkness and feed on the life-giving blood of its victims. A true testament to anti-Christian life as it avoids and detests any and all religious symbols or mentions of God. The vampire can only be subdued and destroyed by driving a stake through its heart, decapitation, or sunlight. It has a fatal allergy to garlic. All these things exist in the modern lore of the vampire. However, through research and digging in the original lore of the vampire, we see that most of these are the result of an evolution to the myth. So, spooklets, 
How do we determine the actual vampire lore and distinguish it from modern pop culture additives? The same way we do everything on Through the Veil. We jump down the vampiric rabbit hole and present our findings to our awesome listeners. The first question we must ask is, how old is vampire lore? The answer to that question is both simple and complex. If we look at a creature that feeds on human blood to sustain itself, we can go all the way back to the age of the Mesopotamians. Yes, I said Mesopotamians. The term Mesopotamian actually refers to a group of different cultures that lived and dominated the area that was then known as Mesopotamia. These groups were those of the Sumerians, the Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians. These groups ruled the lands of ancient Mesopotamia from the beginning of written history, which was in 3100 BC, all the way to the fall of the Babylonian Empire in 539 BC, when it was conquered by the Achaemenid Empire. It was then conquered again by Alexander the Great in 332 BC. The lands of ancient Mesopotamia are what is now known modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, Iran, Syria, and Turkey. In the Mesopotamian age, which is also considered to be the cradle of civilization, there were stories and depictions engraved on clay tablets and pottery of entities and demons that walked the earth, hunting humankind, and consuming their blood. It was not aptly named a vampire in Mesopotamian culture. If we want to focus the path of our quest to uncover the true origins of the vampire and all its namesake, we have to search and dig for information regarding the first confirmed mention of the term vampire in recorded literature. The first confirmed usage of the term vampire in English comes to us from the year 1688. The word had no explanation or meaning presented. What this means in historical literature is that it was a common term used frequently by the people of the era. It was also documented in French literature in 1693 as it relates to cases of vampirism in Eastern Europe, where the lore of the vampire in namesake mostly originated. There were reports between 1725 and 1732 out of Serbia and Altenia that recognized and noted the practice of exhuming corpses and quote-unquote killing vampires. This is thought to give traction to, to the popularization and widespread usage of the word. And if we dig further, we see that the term vampire can also be a combination of Slavic terms that borrowed from other cultures, such as the Turks. We see that Czech linguist Václav Macek proposed the term Vrepitsa, which means to stick to or thrust into, which translates also into someone who thrusts or bites, and its Slavic word pronounced umpir. This has commonality with the umpri, which was a creature worshipped by Slavic pagans in the 13th and 14th centuries. The Slavic pagans had beliefs that totally separated and distinguished between body and spirit. While the body would be lost in decomposition and return to the earth, the spirit was thought to be indestructible. They believed that upon death, a person's soul would leave the body and wander about the area for 40 days before moving on to the afterlife. 
It was common practice that when a family member would pass, the family would leave a window or door open to allow the soul of the departed family member free movement. These beliefs in reference to the body and soul led to the birth of the umpire, which is an unclean spirit that enters the corpse of a deceased person to wreak havoc on the living. They are known to be jealous of the living in all aspects and hate the living with an undying grievance. So how does one become an unclean spirit after death? The umpire is a cursed person before death. This could be someone who died suddenly, if the corpse was jumped over by an animal, suicide victims, witches, unchristened children, or those killed by another umpire. It was also believed that people who showed different physical characteristics were prime candidates to become an unclean spirit after death. Redheads, left-handed people, those with a limp, a unibrow, you had a big head, or having no armpit or pubic hair, those who died during or right after giving birth were considered to be the most vulnerable to be turned upon their death. They believed that the deceased mother would return to feed on her child in the night. Because of this belief, those women were buried at the far edges of the cemetery by the back walls. This legend actually predates Christianity. It no doubt has a hand in creation of the vampire lore. I'm starting to see that what we consider vampire today does not have only one origin. It is made up of many different legends and lore from different cultures and regions on the planet, from all different time periods. We have essentially taken the best, worst, features from different interpretations and made them the perfect monster. When we return, we will look at the different ways one could become a vampire in the era of the old ways. These are ways that you would never have dreamed about. Stay with us. Autumn's Oddities is a strange and unusual podcast made by the strange and unusual me, Autumn Groovy. Each week, I'll be taking you through some of the creepiest cases true crime has to offer. It won't only be true crime, I'll also be covering cryptids, haunted places, haunted things, and the true stories that inspired horror movies. Listen every Monday and Friday for new episodes. And remember, if it's creepy and weird, you'll find it here. Welcome back everyone. Now let's continue with how one was thought to become a vampire. 
In today's mythology, creating a vampire is simplified. Some think that simply being bitten by a vampire is what turns you. That is, however, incorrect. It's not the bite that turns you. It's when you consume a vampire's blood. This accepted way of transformation can be seen in 1994's film, Interview with a Vampire, based on the novel by Anne Rice. The biting and feeding was to drain the subject to make them weak. Then the vampire offered their own blood to turn them. The human body then goes through a physical death and a vampire is born and rises. When we travel back in time, we can see that this version of the lore isn't really a part of the original mythology. For example, let's take a look at the Slavic and Chinese mythos surrounding the undead. In those cultures, any corpse that was jumped over by an animal, particularly a dog or cat, was feared to be vulnerable to becoming one of the undead. Also, if the body had a wound that had not been treated with boiling water, was also at risk. When we look at Russian folklore regarding the undead, those who were previously witches in life were doomed to become one of them, as were those who rebelled against the Russian Orthodox Church. In Albanian folklore, we have the legend of the Dampir, which is the offspring between a vampire and a mortal. In the legend, male vampires had an, uh, an elevated attraction to mortal women. It is said that those were to become a vampire would return to their wives and have sex and create the Dampir. It was also reported that some men would pretend to be a vampire just so they could get the woman they wanted. Ancient cosplay, apparently. Those considered to be Dampir had the abilities of both mortals and the undead. They were said to be able to also see invisible vampires and discern them from their mortal guises. These Dampir were said to usually take up a career as a vampire hunter and that the family job was passed down through generations from father to son. So yes, vampire hunters were and possibly are still a real thing. It should be noted that vampires, also called revenants in the lore, were not only able to be human, but animals as well. As I stated earlier, the term vampire did not exist. In saying that, there were beliefs in demons and or deities that were believed to consume human blood and flesh. The Christian devil was even synonymous with the vampire. The ancient cultures of the Assyrians and Babylonians acknowledged the existence of Lilitu, or as you would know her, as Lilith. Yes, the same Lilith that is spoken out in a few biblical theories as Adam's first wife, before Eve. The same Lilith that, according to biblical scripture, became the wife of Cain after he murdered his brother and left the garden. She is known in Hebrew demonology as is her daughters, the Lilu. Lilith is also referred to as a demon that has to feed on the blood of an infant to sustain herself. There were also what they call estries, which were female shape-shifting demons who hunted during the night. These creatures were thought to have been created in the twilight hours before God rested during creation. So where did all of this get tied into one mythical creature we now know as the vampire. Well, my friends, I'm very glad you asked that. 
Many of the myths concerning modern vampires originated in the 17th and 18th century Eastern Europe. These are the legends that spread through England and Germany and began to be popularized. Reports of entire villages thrown into panic over these beliefs. And one report from the region of Istria, which is now modern-day Croatia, reports that the entire village was terrified that a citizen by the name of Jor Grando had become a vampire after his death in 1656. They claimed that her husband had returned from the dead and began drinking the blood of villagers and sexually harassing his widow. The village leader offered and ordered a reward that his body be exhumed and a stake driven through his heart and his corpse beheaded. Despite the rapidly spreading myth of the vampire through Europe, the Catholic Church rebuked the notion as to the existence of the vampire in 1749 by none other than Pope Benedict XIV. He himself said in a paragraph that translates to on the beautification of the servants of God and on the canonization of the blessed. It seems the Catholic Church was a little too late in debunking the vampire legend, as earlier, in 1721, there were two cases that sparked the European panic of the belief in vampires. These two cases led to mass panic and hysteria, which led to hundreds of graves being opened and corpses being staked. Government officials in different European regions were known to not only take part in the grave desecration, but also lead the parties that were doing it. The two cases were the first to be properly and officially recorded are from East Prussia. The cases involved the corpses of Peter Blagovich and Milos Cesar from Serbia. Peter was reported to have died at the age of 62, but returned from the grave as a revenant. He asked his son for food, and when his son refused his request, he was later found dead the next day. Peter also reportedly attacked and killed his old neighbors, to which the cause of death was labeled extreme blood loss. In Milo's case, he was an ex-soldier turned farmer. He was supposedly attacked by a vampire years earlier. Upon his death while working in the fields, he returned to terrorize his neighbors. There was another infamous vampire legend out of Serbia about a vampire known as Sava Savinovic who resided in a water mill and fed on the blood of the mill workers. These bodies were exhumed by the local governments, they were examined closely, and case reports were created. All this did was add fuel to the spreading vampire legend. The legends were reinforced when epidemics of vampire attacks would rise up out of the increased superstitions. So much that Empress Maria Theresa of Austria claimed that vampires did not exist after sending her personal physician, Gerard Van Sweeten, to investigate the claims of vampiric attacks. She outlawed the, the act of exhuming a corpse and desecrating it by any means. The widespread panic lasted into the late 18th and 19th centuries and made its way to America, most commonly in Rhode Island and Eastern Connecticut. There were a lot of cases that were documented at this time of families digging up their loved ones, cutting their hearts out, believing that the deceased was an undead and responsible for sickness and death in the family. The disease called consumption, or as you may now know it as tuberculosis, 
was thought to be the result of nightly visitation from the deceased who had previously died of tuberculosis as well. The most popular case to come out of New England area was in 1892. 19-year-old Mercy Brown was exhumed by her father and their family physician. They removed her heart and burned it to ash. What we have to conclude, at least I do, that I feel the vampire legend originated officially in Serbia. Given all of the ancient folklore that was available for Mesopotamia and the surrounding areas, I still believe the actual vampire legend came from Serbia, with little sprinkles of other folklore and legends from other regions and cultures for flavor. What about modern vampires? When did the vampire change from a purplish, bloated, walking corpse to the suave, smooth-talking, quote-unquote shimmering icon that we know today? Well, it all started with a little novel called Dracula in 1897 by Irish author Abraham Stoker, or Bram Stoker for short. The novel told its story through letters, newspaper clippings, and diary entries. He used an historical figure known as Vlad the Impaler that died in 1476 in Romania. What did this novel do to the vampire mythos? It added some elements to the lore that forever changed the original ideology of the vampire. The original image of the vampire was that of either a purplish bloated walking corpse, as I said earlier, or a grotesque slender being as depicted in the classic film Nosferatu. The first element from Stoker's masterpiece to note is that it gave an origin that strayed away from the ancient beliefs. The new narrative provided a backstory and motivation for the book's antagonist. It took an actual figure from history and spun a tale of horror seeking true love through the ages. It depicted the vampire Dracula as one who was indeed evil, but sought to fulfill his undead heart's desire to be reunited with the love of his life. It also reinforced the lore of the aversion to Christian theology. The personality of the vampire had also now evolved into a creature that not only fed on blood, but was eternal. It gave other supernaturals to the vampire, such as mesmerizing, shape-shifting, levitation, and so on. It gave the vampire a new image as that of a creature that was an adept socialite and a creature that could be sensual and provocative, as well as a savage killer with no empathy. It almost proposed that the real monster of the book was true love, love lost, and a heart that had been broken. It was now that the vampire started to become a semi-romantic creature. It was evolving through literature from the terrifying creature into a hopeless romantic that was sought after by people everywhere. Over time, the legend grew more and more elegant and of high society through film and literature, such as the Anne Rice novels and early film adaptations of Dracula and the tons of spinoffs that followed. Through the 80s, vampires began to appear in horror comedies, such as My Best Friend is a Vampire, Once Bitten, or the horror comedy The Lost Boys. Now we are seeing the images of vampires as funny and witty, characters appearing on our cereal boxes, 
I can only classify this as watering down a legend for the sake of accessibility. Then we got the Twilight series. I know, I know, I'm going to be stepping on some toes here. And for what it's worth, I feel like I got to give a trigger warning. I'm about to tear the series apart. How did a brutal killer turn into a shimmering GQ model? This creature that once set the entire European continent into a panic is now the embodiment of a teen heartthrob. Yay, Team Edward. I apologize for the harsh criticism of the series, and I realize it is beloved by many people, but compared to where the legend started and the lore behind it, it is such a departure from what we know and a really long way from the actual lore that started the whole thing. I mean, I guess I'm happy that all the crap movies and books that have come out regarding the vampire have kept the legend alive this long. I just prefer my vampires to be feared, not fantasized about. Now let's talk about some of the good that has come from vampires in literature and film. We did get quite a few origin stories for the creature of the night. Let's discuss some of my personal favorites. Let's start with Bram Stoker's Dracula. The film starred Keanu Reeves, Gary Oldman, and Sir Anthony Hopkins as the iconic Abraham Van Helsing. Oldman himself stars as Dracula, who was also Vlad the Impaler. He was portrayed as a knight of the Order of the Dragon, a holy sect that defended the church against all those who opposed Jesus Christ. He had just married his wife, Elisabetta, before being sent to the front lines in the name of God for war. She was tricked into thinking he was dead, and she flung herself from the castle into the river below, killing herself. He, however, was not dead. When he returned home, he was reunited with his new wife's body laying in the church. One of the priests told him that her soul could not enter heaven and that she was damned because she took her own life. This sent Vlad into a rage in which he renounced God for taking her away from him as his reward for his service to him in the church. He took his sword and rammed it into the stone cross in the church. That cross began to bleed and statues began to cry blood. Vlad took the blood and consumed it as a desecration and abomination to God. For this behavior, God cursed him with immortality to watch everyone he loved die. And he gave him a thirst for human blood. The vampire Dracula was born. My issues with this creation story, while it is still one of my personal faves, because the curse was born out of an undying love, is that why would God create a beast to feast upon his creations? Why would mankind be forced to suffer for the action of one man? Maybe it was because it wasn't a personal curse to Vlad himself, but to all of mankind for spilling blood in his name when he is to be the God of mercy and peace. Whatever the cause, this origin story clearly explains the aversion to God and it makes us empathize with him. In a way, it, it justifies his existence and his actions. My second favorite origin of the vampire once again involves Dracula. This is in Wes Craven's Dracula 2000 film. Dracula, as a mortal, 
was none other than Judas Iscariot, the disciple that betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in scripture, Judas hung himself after the betrayal as a way to escape the guilt of the betrayal. However, in the film, God denied his suicide and gave him eternal life to roam in the shadows, feast on blood, and to have a fatal allergy to silver, the currency in which the betrayal was paid for. My third favorite origin story of the vampire doesn't involve Dracula. It comes from the television series The Strain, which can be seen on FX or Hulu. It has a different approach to vampirism. It's more akin to a parasite that takes over the body and changes it. The parasite itself is supernatural in nature. The vampire, or the Strigoi, were created from the pieces of a fallen angel when it crashed to Earth. I like vampires in that show. While they still stray far from the legend, they're a hell of a lot closer than some of the shimmering stuff we have now. Now we have to talk about the origin of the vampire according to the show Supernatural on the CW. According to the lore established by that show, every monster, whether werewolf, vampire, shapeshifter, etc., has an alpha, the first. Those alphas were created by Eve. Yes, the second wife of Adam. Apparently, she was sent to hell for the events that transpired in the garden. If you ask me, Adam should be there too. He should have grew a pair and argued against eating that fruit. Just goes to show you how weak us guys are when it comes to our partners. We damned all of mankind to perish in sin and spend eternity in hell. But damn, she's hot. And I really like her fig leaf nighty. If someone came to me and said, JD, give us an origin story for the first vampire, I would say, okay, and this is what I would give them. Of course, for entertainment purposes only. My first vampire would be Cain from scripture. His creation would be from an intimate encounter between Eve and the serpent. Perhaps the forbidden fruit wasn't a fruit at all. Perhaps it was Cain. There was no actual fruit to be had from the tree. When the serpent deceived Eve, it was to have sex with her, thus creating Cain and defiling God's creation. Adam accepted the forbidden fruit in the act of raising him, but the child was damned. It was for this reason that God did not accept the offerings of Cain, but received the offerings of his brother. After he murdered his brother, he was kicked out of the garden. He took a wife. The only other person mentioned in scripture was Lilith, Adam's first wife. And after she was kicked out of the garden for defying God, Cain met up with her and turned her, then married her, giving birth to the daughters of Lilith. This would explain the Christian aversion, the reason why vampire-like creatures were mentioned in ancient civilizations, short and sweet. Now, as we approach the end of our episode, let's take it back a bit to what more than likely happened to start the vampire legend. The legend probably came from a misunderstanding of things like the decomposition of a human body under environmental circumstances. For instance, if a body was buried in the late fall or winter, the decomp would be slower. So upon investigation, they assumed that since the body isn't decomposing correctly, it must be possessed by an evil spirit. 
We know that tuberculosis was misunderstood as vampirism. People were highly superstitious back then, and every ailment or mishap was attributed to evil spirits, curses, or apparently vampires. Before we go, let's look at some of the common modern lore associated with vampires and discuss them a bit. Garlic. Apparently vampires hate it. However, it's not specific to vampires in myth. Garlic was and is still used to ward off evil spirits of all kinds. So it would make sense that this would be picked up by vampire lore. The infamous stake through the heart. This is a favorite of mine. A stake through the heart would kill anyone. However, the original myth behind the stake comes from the original staking of the corpses, suspected of being a vampire. They were also used to stake the corpse to the ground to keep it inside the grave. It was believed that if the stake was removed, the vampire would reanimate. And another part of that lore that has been forgotten is the stake had to be made of wood from the vampire's home region. Sunlight kills them. This one was also not part of the original vampire lore, as some reports clearly state that the suspected vampires were observed outside in broad daylight. I think this probably originated with the discovery of xeroderma pigmentosum, a disease in which someone is extremely sensitive to UV light. Some people afflicted with the condition could have their skin damaged simply by a light bulb. Yeah, it can be that bad. These conditions didn't just pop up overnight. They have always been around, even during the days of superstition in ancient times. If someone was found with this condition, superstition takes over and boom, they must be a vampire. Mirrors. I don't really know where the mirror thing came from. I would think that since mirrors have always been considered to hold supernatural properties and superstition and mysticism, that that would probably have something to do with it. They can't come in unless they are invited. This is only half true of what the lore behind it says. Vampires actually can enter without an invitation. However, the lore says that if they do, they are powerless to being detected and their supernatural powers are weakened if not completely bound. But if you do invite a vampire into your home, they can be seen in mirrors, garlic has no effect, and they will be able to mesmerize you and feed on you without you remembering it. Now, some of my favorite vampire media. I absolutely love the show What We Do in the Shadows on FX and Hulu. My wife and I watch it every season. It comes out. It's just hilarious. It just goes to show you, too, that I'm not such a stickler on, you know, vampires and what it has to be. I enjoy a good comedy. The Lost Boys. It was a good film from my childhood that I really enjoy. As is uh, 1994 Bram Stoker's Dracula. The original Dracula as well. I enjoy Nosferatu, the movie. My wife and I watch it every year for Halloween. Getting into the comedies. Dracula, Dead and Loving. It's starring Leslie Nielsen. My Best Friend is a Vampire was a good one from the 80s. The Strain, as we mentioned earlier, that's available on FX and Hulu. The Vampire Diaries. And 
a film called Let the Right One In. I didn't know what this movie was about uh, before I watched it. And it is a movie that takes a long, long time to develop. But once it does, you start to understand what's going on. I'm not going to ruin it for you. It is a vampire film. But just go check it out. There's two versions. There's uh, an Americanized version, and then there's a European version with subtitles. Now, this isn't necessarily media, but I also really look forward every year to my one box of Count Chocula that I buy myself. Well, Spooklets, that's all the time we have for this week. I thank you all so much for joining me on our travels from ancient times to the modern take on the vampire. Check out Autumn's Oddities on the Darkcast Network as she just released a vampire episode as well. And I promise you it wasn't planned that way. If you like what you hear on Through the Veil, please consider showing your support by giving it a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family. If you would like to show your support financially, you can do so by clicking the support link in the show's description or through Buy Me a Coffee. Also, feel free to visit the show's website at throughtheveilpodcast.com. Do you have a spooky story of your own? Send it to me at jd at throughtheveilpodcast.com. I'll tell your story on an episode, maybe even invite you on the show to tell it yourself. Who knows? During this Halloween season, don't forget to string your garlic, wear your turtlenecks, and don't invite someone you don't know into your home. And be completely suspect if a friend wants you to invite them into your home. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep an open mind. And join us next week as we explore the siren.